Today's interview is with Dr. Margaret E. Roberts. It's all about censorship and China. Dr. Roberts is a professor in the Department of Political Science and the Holly Giolu Data Science Institute at the University of California, San Diego. She co-directs the China Data Lab at the 21st Century China Center. Her book, Censored, Distraction and Diversion Inside China's Great Firewall, was published by Princeton University Press in 2018 and was listed as one of the Foreign Affairs Best Books of 2018, was honored with a Goldsmith Book Award, and has been awarded the Best Book Award in the Human Rights Section and Information Technology and Politics Section of the American Political Science Association. She also holds a Chancellor's Association's Endowed Chair at UCSD. And with that, let's get into it. I am Taylor Bledsoe, and this is Aiming for the Moon Podcast, where I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. If you like what you hear today, please rate and subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Aiming the Number Four Moon. Also, if you want to check out our website at aimingforthemoon.com, you'll find links to our merch, lessons from interesting people newsletter, other episodes, and bios of our guests. And if you want to support the podcast, get the books through the link below. I get a cut of those, and you get a great book. And with that, let's get into it. All right. Well, welcome, Dr. Roberts, to the interview. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay. So you talk about censorship in China, and that's where a lot of your research is around. So one of the things that I found very interesting when I was looking over your book, Censorship, was censorship has changed over the centuries. Can you kind of give the new age of censorship, if we were going to call it that? Yeah, definitely. So I think when most people think about censorship, they think about fear. So they think about, um, say that um, if you say something, maybe a government might um, reprimand you, get you in trouble, punish you for saying or accessing some information. And I think historically, that's how censorship was mostly worked. So um, especially in the media, you have only a few voices um, before the internet, right? Um, And so the government would try to sort of control what people um, said um, on TV or in newspapers papers or in books um, by having some sort of threat. Um, So if you say something that maybe, um, you know, you could go to jail or something like that. But technology has changed, as you know. And so now instead of having just a few voices, um, you know, with the internet, there's sort of many, many people um, can contribute online. And also information is a lot easier to access from many different sources. And so it's a lot more difficult for governments to sort of, um, credibly threaten everybody who's uh, participating on social media. And so what we've seen is sort of a shift. Um, I mean, we still do see fear uh, as a censorship tool, for sure. We still see people getting in trouble around the world for um, saying things online, going to jail, et cetera, getting intimidated, um, uh, et cetera. But we also see other forms of censorship, which in the book I call friction and flooding, um, which is um, sort of trying to slow down information online. So maybe instead of... um, a threat of punishment for spreading information. Instead, um, you know, maybe your post will just go missing or um, you, when you search something, you might not be able, uh, you know, the search results might be uh, um, impacted or um, you might not be able to access the website. And that's not, there's no fear in that, right? I mean, you 
there's no uh, punishment for accessing that information or for posting it. It's just that it becomes a lot more difficult to actually do. Um, and so that's what we call friction and also flooding. We see lots of governments now trying to control information instead of by by punishing individuals, but simply just by adding lots of information themselves. Um, and so we definitely see an expansion of the forms and types of, of online censorship. So the thing that everyone kind of assumes that censorship is good for regime and uh, for regimes. Can you kind of explain what, what do they think of? And they're like, all right, how bad really can speech be in general? So it's, what are they thinking when they say, okay, well, we want to ban everything that talks. Like there was a meme that went around that said the Chinese leader looks like Winnie the Pooh. So we want to ban all of that. So what are they thinking when they go through the effort of even trying to ban all this stuff? Yeah. So I think a lot of people sort of make the assumption that, um, you know, governments can, you know, who have the, the capacity to do so will kind of control all information. Um, but one thing that people don't realize is that information is actually really helpful and really useful um, for authoritarian governments. So um, it's really important for these governments to get information, right? So um, that they need to know, like, say there's a local government official that's not, um, you know, acting um, right or not doing, you know, making the right policies. They want to know that so they can fix that situation before people get really angry and go out and protest, for example. And so um, having some information free is actually really useful to authoritarian governments. Um, but then, of course, there's some information that's really dangerous to authoritarian governments. And this is often what we call the dictator's dilemma, is that um, authoritarian governments want information, but they also want to control information. And um, especially information about protest events tend to be very sensitive for authoritarian regimes because if people are actually organizing in opposition to um, uh, to the regime, then that's like a big, a big issue. So um, we do see a lot of sort of very selective censorship in um, a lot of these um, different countries where they're sort of trying to control information about certain types of issues like protests um, or criticism of high level leaders or things like, like Winnie the Pooh or these like things, for example. Um, but they're trying to also make uh, some make sort of some protection of information, especially criticism of um, local policies, government policies generally, to try to get that information that they need um, to to govern. So, how much do the citizens in China actually know about what's going on in the world? So, at the time of recording, the um, Russia has been invading Ukraine, and China's kind of been on the sidelines almost. They haven't really done anything. People are kind of wondering what's going on. They've kind of supported Russia, but also haven't gone all the way in, sent troops in that I know of, at least. What? How much do the citizens in China know about the world? Like, we Americans know about it and we're following all this stuff very closely, but what does the average citizen know? Do we know what the average citizen knows? Yeah, so... um there's a lot of variation, right? I mean, just like in the US, um, in anywhere around the world, actually, you know, one of the biggest findings in political science is that people generally around the world aren't that interested in politics. So you you are probably, you know, way out on the tail in terms of how, how interested in politics you are, right? And, and, um, and, but for the most part, people are busy and they don't have, you know, they have other things to do. And for the most part, politics, like people aren't 
pivotal in political situations often. And so, and so informing, this is called something that's called not, not just specific to China, but just generally, um, actually this, uh, this concept was, uh, sort of developed in the U S is this is called rational ignorance. Like it's very rational for people not to sort of inform themselves about politics because they, you know, they have other things to do with their time. Um, and so we'd also see that in China for sure. We see that, you know, people are busy, they, have, you know, things to do in their life. And so they don't spend a lot of time on politics on average. Of course, um, you know, censorship makes it more difficult to find information when, um, you know, I think a lot of people are sort of passive consumers of information around the world, like, you know, sort of consume what we run into a little bit, right? And so censorship influences that information. One of the things that I study a lot is resilience to online censorship. So in what circumstances are people resilient to censorship or they try to like evade it or, you know, get around it. And I find, you know, as you might expect that, you know, people who have more resources, who are more educated, um, tend to be more likely to evade censorship. Um, who are more interested in politics, right? Trying to try to evade censorship more. Um, we also see uh, people tend to evade censorship more during crisis events um, because all of a sudden political information becomes very relevant during crises. So we, it is true that there are some people who have you know quite a bit of access can can actually get you know almost unfiltered internet. Um, but that takes a lot of time and energy. And so we don't see that, you know, on average, people are tending to, to get, uh, you know, unfiltered um, information. Um, yeah. You mentioned in your book that the fact that different people have different levels of access to information actually helps the dictators. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, so... Um, so one of the things that we think about a lot in political science is how sort of people who are really informed about politics tend to sort of um, set the agenda um, sort of so oftentimes a kind of lead um, uh, political um, uh like organization, um, try to tend to lead like public opinion, et cetera. And um, what we see um, in China and in other in other countries that where there's you know quite a bit of censorship is we see that those people who are tend to be really interested in politics often have like a really different information environment than the people who are not. And that and even are on like completely different social media platforms. And that disconnect makes it more difficult for sort of say there to be coordination between um, those two different groups and, um, and in some senses, a little bit polarizing. Um, and so that can be useful, um, from an authoritarian regime's perspective because, um, that makes coordination more difficult, um, um, in that case. So, um, I think it's true that there, you know, the people are in sort of different information environments, um, and, and that can, that can be, be helpful, as you said, so it's like you don't know how much the other person knows. It's kind of this it's there's not a standard normal for everyone. If you want to organize a protest or you want to organize something because they don't they might not know about the problem that you um, that you see. Is that kind of how it it works out? Yeah, so it's kind of like you have sort of a different um you know, like, you know, about different events that are happening in the world, you know, um, or even in, in your own country, right, you know, about you sort of have a different information base. Um, and that can make it very difficult to um, coordinate or, or, you know, communicate about political issues. Is it worth the West and other countries intervening in this? Or is it because obviously there are bad things and human rights violations, like the Uyghur Muslims that are happening in China. 
And I don't know how much the actual Chinese citizens there know about that. But is it worth the West trying to be like, hey, like dropping information packages over the border or over the wall, so to speak? Is it worth that? Or is it kind of like how is it worth the West intervening? I haven't researched this much, so I don't know exactly. Yeah, so I think the U.S. has a role to play um, in promoting um, an open and free Internet. I think that's something that's really important um, around the world, promoting an Internet that's free of censorship um, or, um, you know, that's sort of democratically governed. I think that's um, really important. Um, I think, um, you know, there is sort of a narrative um, within China that the West is sort of intervening to try to undermine um, uh, China. And so I think a lot of um, sort of pushes um, come across at, or, you know, or they, they kind of create backlash, actually. Um, and so um, I think, you know, trying to create institutions, international institutions that support a free and open internet, um, trying to, um, um, you know, create technology that can support a free and open internet um, and trying to support human rights um, more broadly. I think that's a role the U.S. can play um, definitely within uh, within the world. What's the global impact of censorship in China? Is there a global impact like an economics and just policy in general? How does does their censorship of their people affect anyone else in the world? Yeah, so one thing that's really interesting, so there are a few different uh, dynamics that I think are, are kind of worldwide dynamics now. One is that we do see China exporting censorship and surveillance technology around the world. Um, and I think that has an impact on human rights more generally um, internationally. Um, another is that that actually censorship acts like a trade barrier, um, which is pretty interesting. So, um, you know, by blocking Google and Dropbox and, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter, um, it actually protects uh, companies within China um, and, uh, and, and allows them sort of like a, a trade protection. So there is sort of an economic impact. Um, it also, in doing so, just like in your classic trade theory, it also um, sort of penalizes small internet startups in China because in order to get access to these sort of state-of-the-art technologies, they need to find ways to circumvent the internet. Um, and so we do see, you know, an economic impact, I think, of censorship um, um, for sure. And, and, and I also think, you know, this hasn't been studied and quantified, but information is like one of the engines of economic growth and of innovation. And I do think that censorship, um, you know, Google Scholar is censored. Um, GitHub has been censored on and off. Um, um, not, it's not censored right now. Um, but we, you know, censoring information has, um, I think, can have an innovative, um, negative innovative impact on um, those um, countries. So, and, and you definitely see, you know, um, in moments of more extreme censorship, say before um, uh, before reform and opening in China, you see a huge impact of censorship on the economy. So I do think that there's a big can be a big economic impacts of censorship as well. What should democracies think of this? So obviously, it's a bad thing happening in China, and it affects the world globally. And what we just talked about. But should people in democracies be worried about these tools getting over to our kind of? politics and people censoring at all? Or is that kind of like, 
a point that fear mongers kind of use. Is this something that yeah. I should be worried about in the next 30 or 40 years? Or is this kind of like, oh, this is still out there? Yeah, so I would say three different things. One is that the U.S.-China relationship is probably one of the more important bilateral relationships in the world right now in terms of maintaining stability and international peace. And um, we've seen U.S.-China tensions get really hot recently. And it doesn't help that public opinion, like that there's basically a different basis of information, public opinion within China and public opinion within the U.S. So there was a survey um, that one of my colleagues, uh, Haifeng Huang, did um, recently that that uh, basically showed that people in China have a really different person. Like there have been all of these public opinion polls around the world showing that people's perceptions of uh, you know uh, the CCP have really gone down in recent years. But that people within China were like just completely unaware of this and um, and had a completely different perception of how China was perceived in the world. And so you can imagine that that has a big impact on. Um, you know, the way that people think about foreign policy in China. And, and I think, you know, that U.S.-China relationship is really important. I don't think, and censorship, I think, um, you know, really impacts that that mutual understanding of, of what the situation is. Um, the other th- reason that I think we, we need to worry about it is, is that there are moments in which where censorship sort of bleeds into, um, into the U.S. So we'll see people, say, using WeChat in the U.S. getting censored and people... Um, even, uh, you know, we had this incident where uh, Microsoft uh, Bing was censoring um, because they, they operate in China or accidentally censoring information about June 4th within the U.S. as well. So we do see like some some uh, sort of issues uh, where, you know, censorship accidentally <laughs> um, uh, bleeds into the U.S. And I think that's a big problem. That's something that we have to be really aware of. Um, and then the other thing is, is that I think, um, you know, um, the U.S. and Western countries need to come up with a different model for how we can moderate the internet, how social media companies should moderate the internet without direct government intervention, because we don't want government censorship, but in a way that protects the internet from manipulation and hate speech and misinformation. Um, and I think we need we need to build at sort of along the lines of what I was I think uh, talking about earlier, we need to build um, the institutions and um, the blueprint of an open information environment that doesn't include government censorship. So I think that's um, that's the other, um, you know, we, we need to come up with that model because I think I think we're still struggling with with how to sort of moderate the Internet democratically. Yeah, I completely agree. The other thing that I was kind of wondering as I was preparing for this interview So a recent thing that kind of happened, if people remember, is COVID. And what I was kind of interested in is when COVID happened in China, did censorship prevent them from responding? Because you have all the doctors in the towns around China. Would they know about COVID? Like, how would that affect their response? And how did that affect the Do we know how it affected the global pandemic if they'd been more open about their information and their stats? Yeah, so that's a really hard question to answer because we don't know exactly um, what would have happened in a different circumstance, right? We do know that there was a lot of censorship at the beginning of the pandemic. We know that the government was aware of um, this new virus in uh, early January. Um, we know that there was very little publication on that. There was censorship of social media. We have evidence of all of that. Um, so we know that they were sort of preventing information about this from getting out. Um, and But what would have happened in a different circumstance, I think, is, is really hard 
to know, right? Um, and um, and so and you know, <laughs> and so it's hard. I, I, it's hard to speculate speculate about that. But there was definitely a lot of um, of censorship around um, the virus at the at the early stage of um, of, uh, of COVID. I mean, obviously that makes sense because that would be a whole nother timeline of things that would have happened. So wrapping up the interview kind of here, what books have had an impact on you? Um, yeah, so I think I really like um, like sci-fi. <laughs> I think I think it's really interesting to try to think of the world in the future. Um, I think A Story of Your Life and Others by Ted Chiang is one of my favorites. Uh, just kind of interesting thought, short stories, interesting thought experiments about um, you know, life and technology. Um, so I really like those. And then bridging, um, from that to our last question, what advice do you have for teenagers? Yeah. So, uh, my advice is, you know, go and work on the things that you think are important. Um, I think that this new generation is, you know, who has faced a lot of challenges that we've, you know, you've inherited a, a world with a lot of challenges. And so, um, you know, I would say find find the things that you think are important and go tackle them because I think you guys' intuition on that is the best. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Roberts, for coming on. I enjoyed our conversation on censorship and then China, of course, and how that all kind of relates to the global world and everything else that's involved in that. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me and for, for doing this awesome podcast. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully all of you guys enjoyed it. If you liked it, please rate and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at aimingthenumber4moon. If you go to our website, aimingforthemoon.com, you can find links to our merch, the Lessons from Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. If you liked any of the books mentioned throughout this episode, go check them out through the links below. They help financially support the podcast if you use that link. And... Yeah, if you want to see any of my other meanderings, go to taylorglidso.com. And with that, again, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to set your sights high and aim for the moon.